We'll go to First uh, Timothy 1. You can just listen along or turn there or keep eat, eat, enjoying your breakfast, whatever you want. Good to see you guys tuning in as well. We've got Brother Reese tuning in. Hey, Reese. Good to see your name there. First Timothy 1. To Timothy, verse 2. My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may teach, excuse me, instruct certain men not to teach strained doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Father in heaven, thank you for as Paul wrote to Timothy so many years ago, the grace, mercy, and peace that you dole out in abundance through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Through our own efforts, through the law, through our own endeavoring of self-justification, we only find punishment, penalty, Frustration, aggression, but through Christ we find grace, mercy, and peace. Thank you, Father, that through faith alone and Christ alone we are no longer under law, but under grace. Having been slaves to sin, we're now slaves to the greatest master anyone ever could have, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, so at the outset of a day, we remind ourselves, we throw anchor in Christ. He who is full of grace, he who calls sinners, is a friend of sinners, even mocked for such a thing. This invites all to come who are weary and heavy laden. And so Father, we ask that our instruction, as Paul says here to Timothy, that the goal, that the, the outcome would be love from a pure heart, a regenerate heart, a sincere, tender heart, a good conscience, a clean conscience, few greater gifts besides the gospel than a good conscience. Would you give us that, Father, in a sincere faith, a sweet faith, a surrendered faith, a humble faith? Would you give us that? Thank you for these dear, dear men who you love so much, who you care about. You are for them, not against them. You have ordained all things in our various lives and the battles therewith, and that you would strengthen us there too, Father. Thank you for this food and the brothers who labored to bring it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, gentlemen. Uh, It's been a few weeks since we have gathered. Good to see you all. Good to see uh, the brothers online as well. Um, we should have, did we bring some, did we get some extra notes this morning? Yeah, so we have a couple extra copies here, gentlemen. Um, just throw up a hand if you didn't get the notes two weeks ago, two weeks ago. 
Mr. Wilkin, got some handies here. There you are. Uh, I think Mr. I think Todd needs some here as well. Todd Lawrence. There you go, Mr. Todd. All right. Well, you can look at this for the for the now. All right, gents. So we're looking at uh, biblical masculinity as we've been studying the Word of God together, and certainly not saying everything that ought to be said about biblical masculinity, nor uh, saying it perfectly, but we've been looking, whoa, what happened? Oh, the dimmer. There you go. Thank you. Um, Just looking at various topics, we looked at masculinity and the fear of the Lord, that really uh, the fear of God is for the man in Psalm 128. Uh, he sets that, the psalmist sets the fear of Yahweh as the foundation of the man's life. And that everything else flows from there. His, his endeavoring with family, with work, with worship, as we saw in that psalm. Of course, taking it back even further, we looked at masculinity in Genesis 1 and 2. How it's a good thing, it's not a mistake. Uh, it's a grace from God, not any sort of measure of toxicity. Uh, we looked at the fear of God and work and how work was created before the fall, not after. The tediousness of work is a consequence of the fall, uh, not the existence of work. We looked at the, the, the uh, masculinity and the cross from Galatians 6.14, that that really tethers and informs uh, the man's self-identity, um, his understanding of who he is before God, that may it never be that I would boast that man's, man's sinful inclination is to justify himself, actualize himself, to boast in himself. But when we come to the cross in the fear of God, we see that Paul says that I, I'm, I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. And now it's Christ who lives within me. This also be informed in Galatians 2.20. And so we're looking now at, <clears throat> we started a couple weeks ago at, Masculinity and fatherhood. Masculinity and fatherhood. At the beginning of that lesson, we uh, looked at the need. We uh, looked at just some recommended books, um, mostly, exclusively, actually, from the Reformed camp. Not coincidentally, J.C. Ryle's book, Duties for Dads. Uh, excuse me, Duties for Parents. I should say it is helpful for dads. That's a typo on my part. I apologize. Uh, Rick Phillips' book. Uh, I think it's from. Maybe from PNR on uh, masculine mandate, several other good books there. So we looked at some statistics that showed uh, that children from fatherless homes account for, for example, 63% of suicide, youth suicides, 71% of pregnant teenagers, 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 70% of all of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 85% of all youth who exhibited behavior disorders. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger, 71% of all high school dropouts, 75% of adolescents in chemical abuse centers, and 85% of all youths in prisons. So from general revelation there, I mean, those are some, those statistics uh, speak pretty loud of the need for fathers uh, for if there are children in the home. We looked at another study that talked about how there's overwhelming evidence that the religious practice of the father has a far greater influence on the direction of the children than the mother. And I think we would observe that from 
just the fact of, uh, of male headship in the home and how God has designed it. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. And then going on from there, we uh, looked at several different things. Uh, the spirit, uh, excuse me, special revelation and the need for fathering, number, number two. Number three, we looked at fathering and shepherding care. That Psalm 103 tells us, as we looked there, that compassion is a dad trait. Um, that's not like getting in touch with our feminine side. Um, if a man has a wife, his wife is his feminine side. Uh, but compassion is a dad trait. We uh, looked in detail at that. We also looked at discipline. And then I think we left off here. Uh, uh, letter C, is that page six-ish? Um, fathers center the home life around Scripture. Now, if you're not a dad this morning or don't have children in the home, why, why should we study this? Well, because probably you're going to disciple, come alongside others at some point in your life, sooner or later, who are dads, number one, so we want to know what it says. Uh, and just as a reminder as well, number two, e even if you don't do that, all Scripture is profitable and it shows us who God is. Any teaching on fatherhood is a reflection of God as Father and our relationship with Him. And just to be reminded of as society has really has a disdain for fatherhood and for uh, maleness, we want to uh, understand the times and know what to do, as it was said of the sons of Issachar in the book of Chronicles. So here we are, letter C, we left off here. Um, that the Shema was the most important in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema was considered the most important sort of creed, biblical creed, for the Israelite man in Old Covenant times to, to recite, to meditate on. And it wasn't to be a cold, rote sort of thing. If Today, if you go, anybody been to the Wailing Wall today? Anyone stood there at the Wailing Wall? If you go to the Wailing Wall today, it's all that's left of the temple that Jesus would have seen in his day. Um, on the Western Wall, there are stones that weigh multiple, multiple tons. And many will go there and recite the Shema in Hebrew. And, you know, have it, it's kind of an, it's sort of a, a, a startling scene. There's lots of yelling and, and crying out and wailing and, and men like rocking back and forth with phylacteries tied up on, on their head and on their arm. And it's a very interesting scene. Um, and, and may God, as Paul said in Romans 9, 1 to 2, bring them to Christ. Bring those individuals to Christ there who are still sort of stuck in Judaism. But anyhow, point being, the Shema is often recited to this day, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. So the Israelite would recite that twice a day uh, to encourage his heart and remind himself of the need to, to love God and to go out from there. And it's interesting that the very next thing after the Shema is instruction to dads about their kids. And so before we get into the details of that, we're reminded that foundationally, that as, as, as we think about fathering, and does Deuteronomy still apply to us? Absolutely, brothers. All Scripture is profitable. The foundation of that the Shema, which is love the Lord your God. It all starts from there. That as a man is to function in society, in his home, that this is to be the thing about the man. Love. Loving God. 
This is foundational to fathering. And the idea, the Hebrew idea there of love, it's a wholehearted commitment. Not of dry, aggressive, you know, neck vein resistant duty, you know, biting the bullet, but like a melted heart. A heart that both fears and tenderly submits. It's an interesting study in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, to look at how often the Lord is instructing the people of the covenant to fear God. That you would remember what I did in Egypt, that you would fear God. That you would love the Lord your God and fear God. Deuteronomy 10, 10 to, to 12 and 14. So the love there is an unwavering commitment. It means persevering, devout, whole-souled commitment, a tender, humble, knee-bowing, warm-hearted obedience to Yahweh. And whether or not a man is, is, a, is a biological dad, whatever he is, this is what it means to walk with our God. And you don't see this in, in, other, in, in the man-made religions of the world, whether it's Hinduism or Islam or Rastafarianism, this all-out, tender, humble. Other faiths might claim a love, but this broken, fearing, commitment, loyal allegiance, knee-bowing allegiance. This is to be the thing about the man, the anchor point of the man as a leader in the home and going out from there as a leader in society. And so... Love for God began in the heart of the man, went out into the family of the man, proceeded from there into the village, to society, and the nation, an all-out love for God. And so we do well to ask ourselves, as I need to ask myself as I struggle with this, where are we this morning, brothers, in an all-out, no-holds-barred love for God? My knee, the knee of my heart is bent bowed. The affections of my soul are tender before Him and His Word. Where are we this morning in our love for God? I know at times I, I need to um, be open to and inviting of the Lord to do heart surgery. Do a little heart surgery. And perhaps I need that daily at times. So I would just encourage us, everything that we do as, as men and everything we study in the Word of God, you know, right now in Romans 6, I mean, we're at, Paul has us in some, I mean, we're like in the control room of the control room of sanctification, just intricate technical details. But in all of that, whatever it is in life, that, the family, the work, the throes of the fall, that the Shema would be something of our of our, the creed of our heart. A whole-souled bowing, a warmth, an allegiance to God. It's the greatest command. As they came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest command? The greatest command is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. It all starts there. And then Deuteronomy proceeds from there. Notice as quickly in that text, I think it's fascinating, as quickly as 
love for God is commanded, I mean, the very next thing has to do with the Word of God. There is no whole-souled bowing love for God that can be divorced from a whole-souled bowing for the Word of God. God isn't physically walking with us as He was in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Because of the curse, we will that will be restored at the return of Jesus Christ, and may that be soon. But in the meantime, he's given us his word as a way of relationship. And so Israel was to love the Torah. Psalm 119, look in there and do a study of how often probably Ezra, who wrote that, is talking about a love for your word. I lift my hands to your word. There is no, there is no dichotomy between loving God and loving his word. There's no such thing as a humility before God without a humility to his word. It's a fictitious idea that I can be in good relationship with God and, and yet have sort of a, 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 a stiff arming of certain aspects of his word. The new, the, the new and the Old Testament don't afford us that dichotomy. A tender, knee-bowing, whole-souled, committed allegiance to God will look like the same towards his word. A love for God's word. And so what does this have to do with fathering? Well, as we look at Deuteronomy 6 there, and I sort of broke it up into uh, phrase, phraseal blocks there. I'm kind of a visual guy. Life then, as life centers around loving God, it centers around his word. These words, Yahweh says, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. So I think it's an interesting correlation there that the man's heart is to be occupied with the love of God and the words are to saturate his heart. So that, that reminds us too of, of, of the twin pillars of, of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in the Psalter, the twin pillars through, through which the worshiper enters the Psalter that it's no coincidence how those psalms are arranged. They're not arranged by chronology. They're arranged by theology. And the Torah here in Deuteronomy 6 is in part what is informing how Psalm 1 and 2 are laid out. Have you noticed that before? I think it's a fascinating correlation. That the Shema, the most important biblical creed of the man of God, whoever arranged the Psalms, understood that because Psalm 1 tells us that, okay, this is, this is the Psalter, this is the book of worship. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, Psalm 1-3, is in what? The law, the Torah. And in the Torah, he meditates day and night. And as, as he does, he'll be like this tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. That, that's an incredible promise. And so you see that the, the, the Shema, going from the love of God, being saturated to the word of God, then has a, 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 an interesting non-coincidental correlation in how the Psalter is arranged. Namely, that it is the Word of God that informs and gives us traction for worship as we go into the Psalter. And that we see that first spoken of in Deuteronomy 6. So he says in Deuteronomy 6, 
These words shall be on your heart. So the love of God fills our heart. The word of God saturates our heart. And that's how, therefore, we are best placed for God's will in fathering. Whether you're a spiritual father to men or a biological father to men or whatever it might be. And then verse 7. So we don't want to, we don't want to get to 7 before 4, 5, and 6, right? The, the order is critical. Then you shall teach diligently. Right? So it's a spillover. It's a spillover is the idea. Not complicated. Not easy, but not complicated. Teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, rise up. What's the point of that? Everywhere, constantly. That the normal rhythms of life, you know, maybe some of you have family worship, think it's good. Uh, a lot of good, some of our good reformed mentors have said a lot of good stuff about that. I like to do that, but in addition to that, when you're walking, when you're getting up, it's, a, it's just a constant way of life that because by God's grace is the love of God captures the man's heart, the Word of God saturates the man's heart, the spillover is just, I, I, I want to, by God's grace, with that dad trait that we saw in Psalm 103, compassion, I want my kids to hear a lot about Scripture. A lot about it. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I'm not so sure that, you know, as I was uh, 10 years ago in Jerusalem, watching guys, you know, wrap stuff all over, I'm not so sure that that's the, idea that God has for that command. I think it's a heart, capturing of the heart, a way of life, a love, instructing, discipling my children. So first, you guys see the, uh, the, the, the sequence here. We're commanded to love God with every fiber of our being. We're to slow simmer our hearts in Scripture. They shall be on your heart. Uh, again, not a, not a rote formality, an external to-do list. Um, but memorizing Scripture, I think, is commended there. Meditating, memorizing. Psalm 1, again, you can't meditate on something that you haven't memorized, right? You can't chew on something that you haven't put in your mouth. Uh, you can't extract the juices of that ribeye until you cut it and put it in your mouth and make it your own. So dads are to diligently teach Scripture to sons, not that daughters are excluded. Obviously, the command simply recognizes male headship, that males are the leaders of society. The recognition that society is, is, is patriarchal. It is patriarchal. Um, and this is a good thing, that, and it's the way God designed it for his glory. There's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. The word teach there in the Hebrew, it has the idea of to impress not impress, look at me, what I can do, but make an impression upon. It can mean formal instruction, 
It can have the idea of repeating. Teach to inform behavior, to focus on sharpening the students for potent action. Sharpen a blade is the idea. Interesting Hebrew word. And the idea of teach your sons diligently, diligently, it doesn't just mean like aggressively, it means from a, it's, it's an interesting word, it means from a sincere heart. That Hebrew word diligently means an eager, sincere heart with much frequency and thoroughness is the idea of the word there. So teaching can be talking of them, heart-to-heart conversations, discussion, asking good questions. I like to do that with my kids. I want them to kind of, want the wheels to turn. I like to ask open-ended questions. I should say I, should say I attempt to, don't always do it perfectly. I like to ask conscience-bearing questions, questions that will kind of start to knock a little bit on their conscience. Open up. Let's let the Word of God inform your conscience. Shepherding, encouraging. When to talk about Scripture? Always. Lying down is bedtime. Rising up in the morning. Walking by the way? What way? Yes. So dad's point being, I think what is being said here is that dad's lead in saturating the home and and the lives of our offspring until they fly the coop. We saturate it with Scripture. We We can't save our children. There's no formula to ensure their regeneration. And that drives us to God and to tears. I trust if you have children uh, that you've wept for your kids in secret. And, and that's a good thing. And we can't cause their regeneration. But by the grace of God, informed by the Shema, we sure can labor to be faithful in that area by the grace of God. Peter Craigie in his excellent Deuteronomy commentary says, on verses 8 and 9, whether taken literally or metaphorically, the signs described in verse 8 and 9 indicate that the individual and his community were to be distinguished in their character by obedience to the commands as a response love for God. Okay, and just chime in, gentlemen, if you want to add something to that comment, if I forgot something, whatever. Okay, and again, this is just sort of a miscellaneous junk drawers and thoughts on fathering. Number or Letter D there. Three actions of fathering from 1 Thessalonians 2.11. Jumping into the New Testament. Again, everything Paul wrote was very informed by the Old Testament, as it should be. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, of course, the context is uh, spiritual leadership. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, he's talking about his testimony because there there was some um, disdaining of Paul. And so he reminds them, hey, by God's grace, I I, I taught you the word. I was faithful when I was there. And so he says, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Um, And I think that's interesting. He makes an analogy there that would be common knowledge. Dads do this. A good dad does this. Similar to what we observed about the dad trait in Psalm 103. Side note, did the Apostle Paul have kids? Hard to say. Probably not. Um, he was single as an apostle. There's debate in some of the uh, you know, commentaries and the egghead theologians about whether or not he was married. He might have been when he was a Pharisee. That was common. But he was definitely single after that, right? 1 Corinthians 7. Um, 
More to the point, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, indicates that the way in which a father ought to shepherd his children, in part, is laid out in verse 11. Those three traits, three things, exhorting. That's something that should be present. The word means a strong appeal. It's a compound word. Call alongside is the idea of the word. To make an appeal, to call out, to correct. Um, not suggesting, but calling people to adopt a suitable action in, a lot, in life. Sort of, a, it's a little more firm, this word here. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's the same word in Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, which says, exhort one another every day so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we're partakers of Christ as we, if we hold, hold fast our, the assurance of our faith firm until the end. So when necessary... This isn't a dad's only tool, obviously. We'll exasperate our children, which Colossians 3 and uh, Ephesians 6 tells us not to do. But it definitely is a tool. We make appeal, we correct, and we remind ourselves too that, that the sphere of all the, all the dad, dad's doings, the sphere, by God's grace, is what? the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is the sphere in which all dad's doings occur, whether it's, whether it's teaching, whether it's exhorting, you know, compassion, whatever it might be. The sphere in which all this needs to take place by the grace of God is the fruit of the Spirit, which is why dads are utterly dependent on their knees in prayer for God to help them in this holy task. Um, the other dad trait Paul brings up is encouraging. This ought to be a tool in our toolbox. Not flattery, not superficial, but genuine, inspiring someone to continue the good and right course of action. Praise God for that grace in your life, sweetie, son. Praise God. You know, things like manifesting any interest in Scripture, whether or not they're regenerate, we don't know. You know, I mean, that, that's just... That's not... Confirmed in like days and months, but years and decades. We don't know. But any evidence of anything, we want to encourage that. They do well in sports or a test, we want to encourage that. We want kids to be able to look back and say, you know, dad wasn't perfect, but I remember dad encouraging me. That game, that thing that I learned in church, that whatever it was. It ought to be heard often. Imploring, a different word that Paul says is to be a dad trait. A little different than exhortation has the idea of a, uh, urging solemnity and earnestness with which the appeal is made. It comes from a word that means to invoke a as a witness, to declare, to insist. Where needed, solemn urging, again, being the guardrails of the fruit of the Spirit as we do all these things quite difficult. And thankfully, we have the cross that reminds us that where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Okay, so Paul mentions that these, these three actions are a must, not only in pastoring, those who would endeavor in spiritual leadership to exhort, to implore, to encourage, but also tools in fathering. Next thing here in the mishmash, just making some observations of Scripture, give me your heart. Give me your heart. Rick Phillips talks about this. He's got a good section on it in his book, 
the masculine mandate. Proverbs 23, 26, give me your heart, my son. That's a, an interesting command. What do you think Solomon, not a perfect guy, right? I find that helpful. Not discouraging, but encouraging. Why, what is Solomon getting at there when he's telling his son, sons, and by way of implication, his daughters, give me your heart. What is he trying to do as a dad? Big picture, generally speaking. Yeah, go ahead, Ian. Okay, listen intently. Take this to heart. Good, what else? Any other thoughts on that? Give me your heart. Okay, affection. Any other thoughts? Yeah, lead them, teach them, and what kind of, what does he want, what kind of fixture, fixture does he want to be present in his relationship with his kids? Give me your heart. Yeah, I think so. What else? Anything else? Sort of said it, just affection, sincerity. I know dad sincerely cares about me. I might not agree with everything dad says. But I know dad, when dad over the years, as dad, as dad has been imperfect, I mean, I know dad has just poured out his heart before me. He has, he has just laid his heart on the table. Dad has opened up his soul totally to me. Dad isn't a pretender. Dad isn't, you know, thinking he's like a saint on Sunday and, and then being a devil Monday through Saturday. Yes, Dad sins. But I mean, as I've walked with Dad from my earliest memories to the present, I mean, I know Dad has just spilled his heart over. Paul talked about this in different ways in 2 Corinthians. That's a pastoral epistle where the Corinthians are just disdaining him. And he says, basically, in the whole letter, he says, guys, whatever you're thinking, I want you to know, I have absolutely poured out my heart to you. I'm not much of a man, but I've given you all of me as a man. Side note, but relevant, and that was how spiritual leadership is to be. You know, as, as it said, it, being, being an elder or being a spiritual leader doesn't take much of a man, but it will take all of them. And Paul says to them, guys, I've just... What you see is what you get. I've just poured out my heart to you. And, then, and, and so I think that's something that's happening with Solomon, and he wants to also have their hearts intermingled. You know, like taking one cup of water here, one cup of water here, pouring them in. You can't see the difference. They're just intermingled. This is every father's deepest desire, decent father, I should say, is to have the heart of his son and his daughter. To have that connection, that trust, that love, that encouragement, to have the heart of their child. A dad seeks by the grace of God and a, a dad labors in prayer to want to win and hold the heart of their child. 
What an aspiration. And fathering, what a, what a prayer request to give to God. Through love, through prayers for them, prayers with them, time together laughing, time together crying, time together teaching, time together playing and goofing off, which is essential. So they see that dad isn't some like vending, like some cosmic vending machine, some stoic like Greek philosopher. Dad can goof around and, you know, get down on the ground when they're little and have fun or go out later and goof off through all these things. Goofing off, even through solemn discipline, we gain the heart of our child by the grace of God alone. And as we do it, I think it's interesting that the next thing Solomon says it's a safeguard against life's greatest dangers, especially for youth. No coincidence there. Look at verse 27. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. That's a great word picture, a narrow well. You get, you get down in there, you're gone, you can't get out. You're stuck up and down, you're stuck side to side. You're, you're dead. It's going to squeeze the life out of you. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. So just a simple observation there that as we win the hearts of our children by God's grace, I think Solomon shows us that not only is that difficult, but it can be a great safeguard against some of life's greatest dangers. And this is the heart of every dad. It's also the heart of every spiritual leader. Yo. Yeah, for what? Flesh that out. That's good. Well, I wonder, you know, no matter whether you repent it later or repent it early, when you see him say this, give me your heart, let your eyes be in my ways, can be a death sentence if you walk in I think so. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Solomon knew a few things about that, didn't he? First Kings 11 and following. Behold, Solomon loved many, many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from Yahweh. Dang. Spirituality cannot be compartmentalized, can it? Never. I mean, it's linked everywhere because it's the heart. Yeah, good. So much more we could say about that. The prodigal son. Again, in our mishmash here, I think it's an interest. We can make some interesting observations from the prodigal son. Now, to be clear, the point of the text, what's the point of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 11 to 32? Whatever we're looking at, when Jesus says, gives us a parable, look at what precipitates the parable. Look at what comes right before. Behold, the, tax, the, the Pharisees were grumbling, saying, this man eats with sinners. So what's the point of the parable of the prodigal son? Yeah, that's exactly right. God's lavish forgiveness of unsaved, outwardly very immoral sinners. His eagerness to bring to salvation those who seem like they, oh, that guy could never be saved. However, through that, that's, so that's the point of the parable. But through that, I think we can draw some interesting applications regarding fathering as Jesus illustrates God the Father. The guy in the prodigal son, he, he's a pretty good dad. Uh, we might question some of the things he did. 
His father, just, just some observations, his father had saved an inheritance to leave for him. The demand for the inheritance from the younger son was equivalent to asking for his father's death because you wouldn't get your inheritance until dad died. In the slop of his sin, his father came to mind. That's interesting. He, I mean, the way Jesus lays out this parable, I mean, it, it was just shameful. It would have been shocking for a first century conservative Judaistic audience to listen to this. He went into a foreign country after he declared his dad to be dead. He goes to a foreign country. In the Old Covenant, you were to stay in Israel. He goes and works for a pig farmer. He's in the slop with the pigs, fighting over food with the pigs. It was, we have to understand how offensive that would be, how filthy that would be considered. And his father came to mind. Why do you think his dad came to mind? What kind of a dad was he? Such that in the slop of his sin, as he had gone out to a distant country, the text says. Some of our kids will go out to a proverbial distant country. May we come to mind in their hearts if they do. Why do you think he, his dad came to mind? It says he had spent all his money as, with prostitutes and lavish living. Why did his dad come to mind? Just speculation about the, his dad and his upbringing. Yeah, he remembered his dad's compassion, right? That compassion trait. What else? Okay. Flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, he remembered that, right? When the moment of need hit, the moment of remembrance rose, right? That was critical. And that's an that's a important thing in fathering, that we're not just fathering for tomorrow, you know, for when they're 16, but when they're 36 and 26. That, we, that as, as they mature and as they hit the school of hard knocks in various ways, and they all will. They all will. That we want things like the file cabinet. They reach for that file cabinet that perhaps we thought they forgot or never heard years ago. And they pull that file out. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. And the slop of his sin, despite having wished his father was dead, can you imagine how painful that would have been? Dad, give me this inheritance right now. In a, in, a, in a society that ha, uh, functioned off honor, uh, lots of honor, honor your father and mother, that's a good thing. Society still should be that way in some sense. I mean, that was a dishonoring, heart-wrenching request. Nevertheless, he wished his father was dead. He knew his father was someone with whom he could still speak and request forgiveness. Again, as some of you mentioned, perhaps the father's treatment of the son, compassion, affirmation, discipline, altogether reminded the rebellious, unsaved son that his father was someone who he would take back. That's a lesson for spiritual leadership as well. Sometimes you're discipling someone and shepherding someone, and they're, just, they're fleshly. They, they don't like the biblical commands. They like the biblical commands about you know, encouragement, but they don't like the biblical commands about exhortation, and they might flee and in effect tell you to take a long walk in a short dock and then maybe one day they read the rest of the scriptures or the rest of the scriptures sink in 
And they see that you loved them so much in that exhortation and warning them to turn from their sin. The son had rigorously sinned, flagrantly wasted money in a pagan land. But he remembered his dad, his dad's prayers, his dad's words. He remembered his dad saying things like, son, I'll always love you. No matter what, son, no matter what you do, I want you to know that I care for you, I value you, I will welcome you, I love you, and nothing you do can change that. And that turned on as he was laying just exhausted from prostitutes and substance abuse and laying in a mud pit with corn cobs, filthy and diseased. He remembered that. His father saw him as he came home, which meant his dad was looking, which meant dad was on the porch. Dad's heart was on the porch because he loved his son. Ran and hugged and kissed him. It was shameful in first central Israelite society for, for an older man to run. If there's one thing you never saw in Israel in the first century, it was an older man running. You never saw that. I mean, that was more rare than Santa Claus. It just was a great, like, that would just, a man of dignity would never do that. And he hugged him and he kissed his neck, despite the shame that that would bring. How can you touch that man who has been with unclean animals in an unclean nation? How can you touch him? What are you doing? This is a no-holds-barred love, isn't it? Compassion, the dad trait. The father spent many nights on the porch, as it were, looking, praying, hoping. He eagerly forgives him, lavishes him with love in an instant. No matter what a child does, that father has his son in his heart, praying, waiting on the Lord. What a, what a time of waiting on the Lord that father would have had. Huh. Waiting. And applying before it was written, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. First right, Corinthians 13, 7. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love believes all things. Love bears all things. Love never fails. May the Lord help us. What a sacred task fathering is. Spiritual fathering as well. Um, it's not in your notes, but if you would allow me a, a minute or two to add another point for consideration. Um, I don't know if we're on letter F or G or whatever it is. Um, moving out from there, letter G, dads foster good work ethic in their kids. Dads foster good work ethic. This isn't in your notes. Dads foster good work ethic in their kids. Um, I'm not going to repeat what we considered in our study of masculinity and work. Many of those principles apply, are needed for fathering our kids. Um, Mike Faberez in his book, uh, Raising Men, Not Boys, has an excellent chapter on uh, helping our shepherding boys particularly. The principles apply across the genders. Uh, Teaching boys about work. And again, this flows out from love, that heart of compassion, of course. Um, Proverbs 29, 15, just some reminders. 
The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. An out-of-control, self-centered child brings shame upon his parents who gets his own way, who's able to leverage his will. Why is that shameful? Why does Solomon say that that's shameful? That a child whose will can win over the parents, why is that shameful who gets his own way? Why would, why would Solomon say that? Yeah, definitely is wrong, but what about it is shameful? Very good. Talk about that. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Now, he's not saying if, if they're unregenerate, it's the parents' fault, to be sure. And he's not saying that every time they disobey, it's the parents' fault. Kids are unsaved. However, as a, as a general you know, principle, which the Proverbs are, he's saying the responsibility to purge the child of self-centeredness and out-of-controlness is in part the job of the parents, which is why he says before that, the rod of reproof, the rod and reproof give wisdom. You know, how Hebrew poetry works, the principle is stated, and then the contrast, contrasting negative consequence follows. Right? So the job of the parents is to administer the rod and reproof biblically, to purge a measure of that. No, not all of it, but a measure of it. And the same, you'll find the same is in Proverbs 10, 10 verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. So that applies it. That takes the principle of 29.15 more into the idea of the work ethic of children. Shame, the shame of a lazy, undisciplined child is in part, hear me, in part, not in full, in part on the parents. Again, why? Because Solomon tells us it is the parents' duty in part to foster something of a work ethic, a self-denial in their children. So in my opinion, there are at least three, four principles and three realms that I, I want to teach my kids about a work ethic. So there's three realms about work ethic, and there's four principles. So the, the realms are, what are the three realms? The home. The church, for the Old Testament, this would be the, the covenant community of worship. And, yeah, the workplace, whatever that might be. Right? Eventually, maybe a stay-at-home mom, it's the home. Crosses over. So those are the three realms that I, I want my kids to understand and apply these principles. You know, for kids at a young age, this will translate to school. Right? And maybe in, as teams, a job or their sports team or whatever else, if, if they're in some activity like a, a music team or whatever it might be. There's, there's at least four principles from Proverbs I want my kids to take away <clears throat> and understand from Scripture. Number one, number one is that we shouldn't, the Proverbs tell us, we shouldn't have to be coerced to work hard. That, that we shouldn't have to be coerced 
to work hard. Which is to say, our conscience and the fear of Yahweh will motivate that. What, what Solomon is trying to do in parenting and, and, and the Proverbs, and there's tons about parenting, is that the fear of God and their conscience, even if you, you can't force them to be saved, those would, those would be the driving force to help them overcome the, inertial, the inertia of resistance to work hard. I like to tell my kids things like, Let, let's not have to be told. You know, after I've, obviously after I've already told them and we've shepherded them, once that initial shepherding happens, repetition, we shouldn't, I like to tell my kids, we shouldn't have to be told to do your work. Instead, sweetie, let your own heart tell you to do your work. I want to move them towards that. Because as Solomon tells us, the kids are going to fly the coop. They're not going to have the guardrails of the parents anymore. Yeah, they might call you now and then or whatever. So we want, so the two things that Proverbs commends us to be the, the driving force to overcome that inertia is conscience and the fear of God. Those are the two things, and they work together. The fear of the Lord is the best counselor for children, the best guardrail for a human being. We saw that in Psalm 128. So, you know, <clears throat> when they're little, we want, the, we want kids to take their plate to the kitchen, hang up their jacket. Um, we want them to volunteer in church. We want to teach them that from a young age. Do something in church. You got your allowance? Bring something to put in the offering. Mo help move that chair. Say hi to somebody. You see a piece of garbage on the floor? Pick it up. Right? Spirituality can't be compartmentalized. We want their heart to be informed by their conscience to overcome the inertia, which will manifest in these three areas, every area. And we want them to do this, to hang up their jacket, to do their homework, to be a good witness on the team, to, to serve and volunteer in church, not because we're there constantly having to tell them, right? Because those guards, well, guardrails, when they're removed, you know, but by God's grace, their conscience has been informed. They've been disciplined. And discipline looks different when they're 3 and 13 and 17. In other words, we want their conscience informed by God's word, sensitive and responsive to God's work, to God's word and work and everything. This, I think this is what Solomon is doing. If, if you'd give me one and a half more minutes here. What Solomon is doing in Proverbs 6 with the parable of the ant. It's an interesting parable. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Which, notice what he says, having no chief, officer or ruler, prepares her food in summer and gathers her provision in harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? The point of that parable is not to work hard. That's secondary. The point of that parable is don't have to be told to manifest righteousness in these three chief realms of life. Don't have to be told. The ant doesn't have someone like cracking the whip, blowing a horn. You know, like in the summertime, in our four weeks, five weeks of summer in a good year, uh, I go with my kids into our, into our yard and we look at the ants and, and I'll ask them, honey, do you see, is there anyone there like belting out, yelling at them, telling, no, they have no chief or ruler, like Solomon says in Proverbs 6. The point of the parable is let your own heart, your own conscience, internally, that fuels you to do what's right. Okay? We're out of time there. We'll get to the next three, and then there's another 
deal uh, I want us to sp- talk about next year, the dangers and blessings of sexuality, how dads, uh, how Solomon shepherds us to handle that with our kids next week. Father in heaven, thank you that we have a great high priest at the throne of grace who eagerly invites us in our time of help and need to come before him and always in parenting. That's always, always a time of help and need. I pray for all of us current and and future dads. Father, give us strength. Would you give us extra grace, extra wisdom, extra humility to walk by the Spirit and to, by your grace, carry out these dad duties in a way that is befitting of our profession and that you would save our children, Father, what we cannot do. Salvation is the Lord. Would you save them? Give all the brothers, give us strength as we go out Today and all the battles we face and the curse, give, I pray give the brothers extra strength and grace until we gather for worship. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good one.